0: Please remain standing for our Scripture lesson. So we're nearing the end of 1 John chapter 5, verses 16-18. through 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. Believe it or not, we have only one more sermon left in our long 1st John series. Lord willing, we'll cover that next Lord's Day. Then after that, as promised, I wish to do in summary fashion a survey of the last six books of Daniel as we had gone through the first six, the last six chapters, I should say. We went through the first six, word by word, and in a few installments, I would like to keep my promise to finish that by hitting the high points of the last six chapters, probably in three to four sermons or so. And then after that, perhaps entering, this isn't for sure yet, perhaps entering a series in Second Corinthians, which if it took some 70 or so installments would run us right up to the end of, next year, 2024. So stay tuned. We'll have more information about that for you. But just wanted to give you a little bit of preview as where we're going. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer, shall we? And seek his face and favor. Father, we thank you that you brought us to this point, this high and holy place where we hear Jesus speak gospel love and grace and mercy and blessing to his bride, his church. And from here, we take that gospel into the world, grant us grace as we handle this interesting text of Holy Scripture, somewhat uh, singular in some ways, but we commit our way to you, pray that you'll fill us with your Holy Spirit and wisdom and grace, in Jesus' name, amen. So, the text that Elder Craig just read a few moments ago is quite interesting Somewhat unique and an oft-discussed passage, really. What does the Apostle John, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mean by this language, sins that do not lead to death, and thus sin that leads to death? Now, one thing we need to state right off the bat is that ultimately, all sin, big or small, heinous or venial, if you will, is leading to ultimate spiritual eternal death if it is not covered by the blood righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are conceived in sin. Just that very fact is reason enough for us to be under the wrath of God and condemned to an eternal hell, just by that. And so any sin leads to death unless it is atoned for by the blood of Jesus. And this very author, John, says as much in quoting Jesus in Acts 8.24 and surrounding verses, and therefore we might ask the question, why the same minister John now insists on talking here at the end of this little general Catholic epistle, we call 1 John, about sins that do not lead to death and thus sin that leads to death. Now, I want to say this right up front, and that is that I'm glad that John emphasizes in this text the sins that do not lead to death more than he does the sin that leads to death. Hence, the title for our sermon today is not the sin that leads to death, but the sins that do not lead to death, so we'll seek to explain all of this somewhat as best we can and what follows. But for right now, let's make it our goal this Sabbath day to bless God for forgiveness of sins in Jesus' blood atonement. With this in mind, we'll be studying today 1 John five sixteen through 18. And if you're new here and uh, you haven't received a bulletin, they, we want you to have one. There are outlines in there if you wish to use it. This is where we would start. title of the sermon, Sins That... Do not lead to death. Every sermon has got doctrine. Every text does. The doctrine here is the true church must recognize differentiation in sins. Now, not all sins are created equal, contra of the foolish mantra of many people today who like to say, oh, all sins are the same, etc., etc., and they apply that to various things in society. And that is not true. Not all sins are created equal. They do have different ramifications. But John here, in this context, is not referring to the difference, for instance, between straight-up adultery and the perversion, for example, of homosexual behavior. That's not the point in this particular text. Now, that's brought out in other places in Holy Scripture. Instead, he has something else in mind, and he has a particular audience in mind. With that in mind, then, let us now seek to better understand why the true church must recognize differentiation in sins. First, because this instruction is directed to the covenant community. This is really interesting because that's the truth. How do we know this without any doubt whatsoever? Because of the words that start this pericope of Holy Scripture found in Verse 16a, quoting John, If anyone sees his brother, and that could of course be a sister too, committing a sin. So this has to do here, this whole analysis, in a very real sense, nothing with the world. This is not the world out there. This has to do with the covenanted people in the church, not those outside. Now, if this is the case, and obviously it is, then how can John write about a baptized church member with regard to a sin that leads to death? Now, that's a good question. And that will be a big part of our adventure today as we work our way through this section of Holy Scripture. But before we go any further, let's make it imperative and clear in our minds that John is talking about those who are professing Christians within the church. And that's a, a very important point. Hence, it's good for us to try to face this fact and to discern better just why the true church must recognize differentiation in sins. Because this instruction is directed to the covenant community, which means that we are vested, V-E-S-T-E-D, with the responsibility of proper responses. Now, I, I think that another important dimension of this particular text at the end of 1 John that tends to get caught in the weeds or maybe even left out altogether is what we read in verse 16. That verse actually focuses mostly on how faithful Christian, humble church members loving each other are to respond to sins that we behold in each other. How do we do that? And that response is to be appropriate and suited to the occasion, seasoned with lots of grace, mercy, kindness, love, tenderness, compassion, all those graces of the Holy Spirit and the fullness thereof. Almost all sins, the vast majority of sins, sins that do not lead to death, may be responded by us in prayer, even as we behold those in other people. It's an interesting teaching here, responding in prayer. This week I'm supposed to meet with some brothers about something that Brian Chapel had recommended to me to consider, and that is thinking about a new way of looking at the BCO, where sometimes discipline issues don't have to go to courts. And it's just providential that we're looking at this text. Christians see each other sin, and lots of times the answer is to pray. To pray for those that we see sinning. And in so doing, we are hearing in this text that God gives life Life to those that are sinning. This is part of the life of the Christian church. It's a a life of love, a life of grace. There is, however, one sin, obviously, from our text today, that doesn't come under this aegis, and about which even prayer should not be offered, according to verse 16c. Which makes an interesting discussion. You might be saying, Pastor, just what is that sin? Tell me, tell me. Well, hold on. We'll try to figure it out together today, Lord willing. So, the doctrine. The true church must recognize differentiation in sins. And now from the text, let us grasp how the faithful church is to handle sin. From verses 16 through 18 of 1 John chapter 5. First of all, let us notice that we have to handle sin, all right, and secondly, let us recognize that we do handle sin one way or the other. The only question is, do we do a good, proper, gentle, kind, compassionate Christian job of it, or do we not? And sometimes we're somewhere in between. So, with this... Formidable task before us, or at least seemingly formidable, let us strive to more fully comprehend how the faithful church is to handle sin. First, by lovingly interceding for each other as we are all sinners. Verse 16a and b, and that's our key phrase. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask God, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, as I said earlier, this part of the equation of this passage does tend often to get muted out by other important, loud discussions coming out of this section of Scripture about what is this sin leading to death, etc. But we shouldn't miss this. We have an actual, glorious, beautiful privilege as the church to minister to each other as we behold each other sin. Now, I grant that John paints a rather stark background here in verse 16a and b, and even with what follows, but I also think that he presents a wonderful honor for us, the regenerated saints of the forgiven Church, We possess that. I believe that these words could be applied to something as simple as our beholding a fellow Christian parishioner even inadvertently saying or doing something that was just plain sinful, even though he or she who did it may not even be aware of it, may be prone to it, namely that particular sin. Now in that case, according to this text... Prayer may be made for that person, and God will provide life in Jesus Christ to that person. Now, you might be saying, well, should more be done? Should there be more process? And the answer to that is maybe. It depends. It depends on a lot of things. It depends on circumstances, situations, wisdom, grace, humility, walking in the Spirit, sensing the way God would have us act according to his written word in love and grace and kindness. The officers may need to do something. It may be a gentle admonition. Maybe the Christian prisoners would help each other in this regard. But it just depends. And so we need that kind of wisdom. It's an interesting text, isn't it? You behold a brother or sister committing a sin. It's not a sin leading to death. Pray for them. God will provide life. That's probably the best place to start, and then from there we go into any other potential dimension. Now let's move on to this next intriguing category that you've been waiting with bated breath to hear. How the faithful church is to handle sin. By lovingly interceding for each other, as we are all sinners, and by wisely discerning the nature of sins, verses 16c and 17. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So, what is this sin that leads to death? Well, personally, I think that a church minister worth his salt should be able to outline at least the options of what the sin is without resorting to commentaries. So, keeping my own word, I have not resorted to commentaries. So, if I'm up for heresy at a trial after this sermon, you'll know that I missed one or two other options. But in that light, let me give you my four alternatives that I would present as the sin that leads to death. First, the most obvious one, that being the commission of the unpardonable sin, as per Matthew 12, 31b, and 32b, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Two, perhaps the second most obvious, in my opinion, given the context of 1 John, where he has been lambasting the docetic Gnostics, as you know, is the succumbing of a church member to Gnosticism. As if John would see that as potentially the sin leading to death. 1 John 5, 10b would be a reference there. The third option, the overt, and I stress the word overt, open apostasy, which is a renunciation of one's faith, of at least a former church member in denouncing one's faith, alleged faith in Christ, even though as Reformed Christians who believe the Bible, we understand and accept that no true regenerative faith could ever be or would ever be renounced or denounced by anyone. And that should be a comfort to all of us um, in our own context, because where there is real regenerative faith, that's impossible to be renounced. But let's say it's, it's not, and yet there is a formal outward covenant-obligated faith, and yet it is renounced. Well, is that what is the sin leading to death? And fourthly, the practice of some kind of bold, stubborn, audacious resistance to Christ and the gospel in a church member. Now, I do have to confess that I do know that the Reformation Study Bible does, I think, accept that position, So I'm aware of it. I, I don't like that one. Um, I think numbers three and four, apostasy and resistance, can be immediately eliminated. Because nowhere in Scripture we told to cease praying for people who are in that position. Actually... Even it's true with regard to excommunicants. People who are rightly put out of the church do not by that fact make themselves the non-objects of prayer by those who are faithful in the church. Remembering that discipline, even that kind of discipline, is for the glory of God, the purity of the church, and the reclamation of the sinners. So I think three and four are out. That leaves one and two. And that would be, number one, the unpardonable sin, and number two, succumbing to heresy, any kind of serious heresy. In this first John case, the heresy of Gnosticism. Of those two, I prefer, number one, the unpardonable sin. I'm open to be corrected on that. Maybe you have some other ideas. But that seems to me to be the most reasonable alternative. But there's also verse 17. Let's look at that one again. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Aren't you glad for that? All wrongdoing is sin. Every deviation from the law, perfect, righteous standard of God, is undoubtedly sin. But not all sin leads to death. There are two key bookends there in that verse 17, and I just mentioned it that one is the righteous law of God, when it's offended, it is sin. And two, yet despite this fact, God is mercifully willing in Jesus Christ's blood atonement alone to expunge, cleanse, wipe away forever any sin except the sin leading to death. Now, for this marvelous grace in God in Jesus Christ, let the true church give him thanks and praise. How the faithful church is to handle sin? Well, by lovingly interceding for each other, as we are all sinners. By wisely discerning the nature of sins. And finally, by gratefully acknowledging God's sovereign election of his own. Verse 18... We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, and that's an allusion to the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, he who was born of God protects him or her in the church, and the evil one does not touch him. Isn't that beautiful? To me, this verse 18 has as its clear reference the chosen children of the redeemed regenerated, yet still struggling sinner saints in the church, but the elect redeemed, who absolutely are justified, who are inevitably being sanctified, and who could never be removed from Christ or the covenant of his faithful church, no matter what, nothing could wrench us away from him or his family, his church. Now, why do I believe this regarding verse 18? Because this verse teaches us that the regenerated soul makes progress in grace, quoting, does not keep on sinning, and this born-again human being simply cannot be lost again to the old self, the world, or the devil, since Christ, the one born of God, protects us and the evil one does not touch us, according to this verse. So verse 18 is a fabulous encouragement for you faithful saints. All you forgiven, struggling sinner saints of God's church. Does this mean, by the way, that we don't sin anymore? Is, that, is John making an absolute statement that doesn't keep on sinning? You've got to be careful with John's language a little bit and balance it, because... Back in chapter 1, at verses 8 to 10, he clearly informed us that we do sin, and if we say we don't, we make God a liar. So he's not contradicting himself. He's saying that we make progress in sin. Well, in sanctification, I should say. Verse 18 is a fabulous encouragement for us as we struggle, because though we possess in ourselves nothing good, no righteousness, no justification, no goodness at all. Nothing that would allure or attract God to us. We are in ourselves, as fallen sinners, conceived in Adam's guilt, not, not good at all. There is none. We are nothing but piles of depravity, and that's being kind to us. But in Jesus Christ, we have all goodness... All righteousness, all purity, all holiness, all justice, all righteousness of any sort in Jesus Christ alone, not in ourselves. It is imputed to us as an alien righteousness. But it's ours. We clothe ourselves with Christ. We put him on. It is ours. We go from this putrid state of depravity To the glorious state of the children of God, the royal king and queens of heaven. The only reason that we're alive today and that we will persevere in Jesus and his church to the end of our time here on earth is because of what this verse 18 tells us, that Christ protects us. If he didn't, we'd be dead meat. In a nanosecond. And that because Christ protects us, the evil one cannot touch us. Oh, he tempts us, he troubles us, of course, but he cannot claim us. All our hope is in Jesus alone. So we've done the doctrine, we've done some exegesis, let's do some application this morning and revel in why we should praise God that some sins do not lead to death. If all sins led to death, and this special 1 John 5 sense of death being analogous to inevitable damnation, then there would be no hope for any of us. We would all be doomed to destruction. And though it is true, as argued earlier, that any sin, big or small, that is not covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, does result in righteous wrath and condemnation of God. Nonetheless, because almost all sins, even very grievous, heinous ones, can fall under the purview of Jesus' cleansing and God's forgiveness of us, we have good cause to consider why we should praise God that some sins do not lead to death. First, because the only reason this is the case, and there is a reason this is the case, but that reason ultimately has nothing to do with us, certainly, and it even doesn't have anything to do with the types, degrees of, and characteristics of various sins. Instead, it has to do with the possibility and reality that any sins could be expunged, nullified, taken away, righteously eliminated from sinners at all. And this possibility and reality was conceived, if I may say it that way, in the eternal councils of the Holy Trinity before time and creation ever came about in what Reformed theologians call the covenant of redemption. In that covenant, it was determined that not only would human beings created in the image of God fall into a hopeless, helpless, lost state of alienation and atomization, from God and each other, yet a Redeemer, one of the holy persons of the Holy Trinity, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Christ, the Word of God, would come and be incarnate, would become a man, a human being, and would die on behalf of the elected people that the Holy Trinity chose from before the creation of the world. This would happen in the glorious person of Jesus Christ himself who would suffer for these people, who would satisfy the wrath of God, propitiate for them, who would substitute for them, atone for them, and that person would be now the God-man, Jesus Christ, the eternally God-man. It's interesting that we read the Chalcedonian Creed this morning. It keeps driving that point home. You know that he will always be the God-man. Next Sunday we'll sit at the table with him in heaven and celebrate the Lord's Supper, and yet he is there in the corporal body with the wounds of crucifixion, bearing evidence of his atonement for his elect church, And having risen from the grave, he is the ascended Lord and King of all, the church and the world. And everything is being brought into subjection to him, even right now. All of this would bring God the greatest possible glory. You ever thought about that? God, the great God, the only God that exists, the one who created everything... This is the way he gets the greatest possible glory. By the second person becoming a man, dying for elect church, rising from the dead, being glorified in us. And it had to happen in time and space. This then helps explain why we should praise God that some sins do not lead to death. Because the only reason this is the case is because Jesus bore these iniquities for his otherwise helpless, hopeless, chosen church. There's no other reason or explanation for our justification. Jesus Christ came here to earth to save sinners. Not good people, not religious people, not people that don't need Him. He came here to save wretched, putrid, gross sinners like you and me. People that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for. He came here to save us. And he fully achieved his goal. Why do you and I and anyone else who is in Christ Jesus today, faithful in the church, having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and adopted into God's family, why are we there? Why are we who we are? Why are we doing what we're doing right now? Why are we doing right now the highest, most glorious thing that can be done? Why? Is it because we're so great? No, there is no goodness in us. Nothing to attract God to us. No desirability in us. But only for God's good pleasure. And for reasons that are known only to the persons of the Holy Trinity. Without Jesus Christ, dears, there is no hope. We are completely Hopeless, And all the people you know who are outside of Jesus Christ are in hopeless situation, except they are not. There is a gospel. And that gospel is to be proclaimed to all people everywhere. We're to pray for them. In Jesus Christ, the true church now not only has all hope, we also possess all things in Christ, as per 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. So, dears, on this Sabbath day in this worship service, let us renew our faith in our beloved Savior and freshly enjoy the sweet cleansing, the wonderful freedom of forgiveness, the heart set free by God through Jesus Christ, totally free, no condemnation upon us because it was all born by Jesus himself. The blood sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Beloved of God, true church, sins that do not lead to death, ironically, remarkably, sovereignly, incredibly, inevitably, lead every elect soul to Christ. Let us bless God that because of Jesus alone, there are sins that do not lead to death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that fact. We know that we deserve that damnation and our very connection to Adam, rebellion against you, hating you, wanting nothing to do with you, and yet this glorious gospel has accosted us in Jesus Christ and brought us into your church. We bless you for that. We thank you that you've made us your children, that you've forgiven us all our sins, washed them all away. Bless us as we apply these verses, as we love each other well, tenderly and compassionately, even as we hold the warts and foibles and flaws in each other, lift each other up in prayer, and do so for your honor and glory. We do all this, Father, for your praise and thanks that you might be, build, be building up your holy church into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen.